Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we'll be talking about this week. Now, in this week's show, we're only going to be discussing two stories. In the headline segment, we'll be talking about, obviously, talking about Syria. We'll talk about the chemical attacks. We'll talk about Assad. We'll talk about the very predictable response by the U.S. and the Trump administration. And we'll really focus in as well on the Western media's response to this this whole ordeal. After headlines, we'll move into the main segment. We're going to continue our talk about world historical revolutions. Last week, we covered the French Revolution. So obviously this week, we're going to be moving into the Russian Revolution. Now, if you have any questions for me, you can usually find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have a Facebook page up now. Just search for Manifesting Podcast. I am occasionally on Instagram as well. If you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. That is always very appreciated. And if you want to listen to the show, you can now find me on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much any podcast platform. You should be able to track me down at this point. So jumping in into headlines, uh, let's go ahead and discuss the situation in Syria. Now, the situation in Syria is kind of an interesting dichotomy just because there obviously is a lot to talk about we need to we'll probably begin with the the chemical attacks who was or was not likely behind those we need to talk about the u.s response with the missile strikes and we need to talk about the media response as well so there's a lot to discuss it's a very interesting story on the other hand this is really nothing new from the united states right I mean, the U.S. has been meddling in Middle East affairs for decades and decades, and this insane foreign policy just continues over there. So what imperialists choose to do or not to do in this day and age is not altogether surprising. So again, very interesting story needs to be discussed, but it really is just more of the same from the U.S., if we're being honest. Getting into the chemical attacks themselves. Now, I'm not going to be saying anything that that hasn't already been said online somewhere about this whole situation, because I think if you know a little bit about what's going on in Syria, looking at these chemical attacks, there's just at the end of the day, there's literally no reason for for Assad to have done them. There's just no reason at all. You know, the Syrian Arab army over there is on the brink of victory. They have been for some time. They've been winning this war with conventional weapons this entire time. The only thing a chemical weapon attack would do would raise the interests of the West or other imperialist powers around the globe, thus involving them in the conflict. So if you're Assad, you're winning this war. You're like 90% there, maybe even over 90% there. Why would you use chemical weapons at this point, knowing very well that that's going to draw in the U.S. and Israel, etc.? What do you have to gain by doing that? You know, just about a year ago to the day almost, there were chemical attacks in Syria, and we saw this same story trotted out from the media about, oh, look at this animal Assad gassing children and citizens. And there was a lot of calls, especially from types like Hillary Clinton. Obviously, all the media was clamoring for war. You know, they're saying, again, look at this this villain over there gassing children. We need to do something. You know, as the sheriffs of the world, we have to go over there and, and set things straight. But, of course, you know, as we predicted then, you know, shortly thereafter, a few months after it came out, and really a buried headline in the New York Times, I believe it was, 
that, you know, Mattis came out and said, yeah, you know, Assad actually wasn't behind those chemical attacks. But here we are a year later, same story is trotted out, same response about how Assad's an animal, and we need to go in there and, uh, and intervene. So again, look at this logically, look at it strategically. Why would Assad use chemical weapons when he has basically won this war using conventional weapons? It just makes absolutely zero sense. Now, the much more likely scenario, really the Occam's razor situation, if you will, is that these quote-unquote rebels who are fighting the Syrian Arab army, and these rebels are just nothing more than Western-funded terrorists, really. These are members of like ISIS and Al-Qaeda who are over there fighting the Syrian Arab army, just trying to destabilize Syria, and they are fully funded by the U.S. So the much more likely scenario is that these rebels carried out the chemical attacks, because look at it strategically on their end. If they do that, they know that's a very likely chance that the U.S. is going to use that opportunity to blame Assad for doing it, giving them an excuse to come in there and bomb the shit out of Syria. So at the end of the day, if you have the rebels carrying out this chemical attack, they have the U.S., and not only the U.S., but France and the U.K. now, basically serving as their air force. You have the U.S. serving as the air force for al-Qaeda in this situation, as bizarre as that sounds. But that's exactly what happened. You know, they were about to lose this war, this whole fight. So this is kind of a last-ditch effort, and it completely worked. So I think that is a much more likely scenario. If they're on the brink of defeat, this is a desperate move, and they had the desired result. So for about roughly a week after the chemical attacks were first reported, you had a whole will-they-won't-they situation in the U.S. where Trump was all over Twitter, as per usual, talking about Syria having to pay a big price for what happened there. And, you know, unsurprisingly, eventually they did decide to carry out these limited strikes in Syria. Now, when it first broke, you had some sources out of Syria talking about that they were hearing some loud explosions. So, I mean, there was this moment where it was like, okay, are we starting a full-fledged war in Syria? Obviously, with Russia being involved, that could get very bad, very fast, or looking at like World War III type shit. So it seems like it is just a, a strategic attack. I've seen numbers from a few different sources that roughly about 100 missiles were sent over that way. You know, Trump was on Twitter talking about what a fantastic success this was, even though I think it was like 70, maybe more than 70 of those missiles were actually intercepted by the Syrian air defense. So like less than 30 hit their target. Others were jammed and sent off course. So, I mean, even if you're looking at that objectively, it was not really a successful attack by any means. But again, you had Trump um, all over Twitter talking about what a great success this was, even using the words mission accomplished, which I'm not going to give that guy credit enough to assume that he was just being like coy and clever and like, you know, hearkening back to that old Bush line about mission accomplished when it was anything but. But um, yeah, you had him sending out that tweet saying that mission accomplished. But, you know, what did you expect him to say? No matter what happened with these missile strikes, he was going to come out and say that it was some grand success. And as predicted, the media absolutely ate it up. Both the quote-unquote left and right on the media absolutely fucking ate this thing up. You had Democrats like Chuck Schumer coming out, talking about how he supported this military action. You had Democrats falling all over themselves about that this is a great idea. You know, this is, this is a good first step. We need to have a strategic response, but this is a good first step. 
You had people over CNN, like Fareed Zakaria, talking about how he supports this bullshit. This is nothing new. I mean, when the U.S. goes to war, both the quote-unquote right and left will support this shit ad nauseum. So the media response was as disgusting as expected. I mean, this again, this cheerleading for war is nothing new. And, you know, you had the the most you would really get even out of Democrats like Bernie Sanders, the 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 biggest condemnation of this action was the fact that he didn't come out against the strikes per se. He basically came out and said that, well, you know, Congress should have to vote on this first. Didn't say that he would even vote against it. You know what I mean? This is the the tepid, meek response we get from quote unquote communists like Bernie Sanders here in the the United States. So just a completely fucking weak response from the Democrats and the media, which is nothing new. Everybody in this country loves war, and this is uh, just further proof of that fact. And this actually even went beyond the mainstream media. You even had a source like The Intercept coming out, um, like the day of the strike or the day before the strike, not saying that they were supporting U.S. intervention in, in Syria. In fact, you had Jeremy Scahill on Twitter, Glenn Greenwald on Twitter saying the opposite. You know, look at our record. We haven't supported intervention ever, et cetera, et cetera, which is that's true. But I mean, come on, man, you have the intercept running these anti-Assad, like Assad's a torture stories conveniently during the same fucking time period, like feeding into that narrative that the U.S. needs to go over there and intervene. I mean, you're not innocent in this. Like, I thought that was really fucking gross. And then you had, again, Scahill and Greenwald on on Twitter just tearing everybody down who was calling them out for this. Like, you know what? Fuck you. You know what you're doing with that shit. Don't act like... Don't act like you don't know what you're doing. You just happen to come out with these anti-Assad stories on the same day that we're considering going in there and bombing the country. That is some weak-ass bullshit, and the defense against it was just as weak. So I'm not going to put on the tinfoil hat and say that whoever is funding that project over there, The Intercept, that they forced them to run this story or anything of that nature. But again, the response from Scahill and Greenwald is very telling, and the fact that they did not have a response as to why these stories were run when they were. They just kept going back to this fact that look at our history of anti-U.S. intervention. We would never call for this. Look at our history. Look at our history. Again, never addressing the fact that they were running these stories ever so conveniently and around the same time when the U.S. was deciding whether to strike Syria or not. So pretty strange, to be quite honest with you. Speaking of media responses to uh, what's happening in Syria... One of the more short-sighted narratives I've seen come out of this whole situation is the fact that, you know, Trump went through with these attacks just to distract from this Stormy Daniels situation. You know, while I wouldn't put it past Trump to do something like that, I think it just doesn't it doesn't acknowledge the fact that the Hawks in Washington, again the media at large, they love this type of shit. I mean, anytime there is an opportunity to start a war or further meddle in the Middle East, this is something that they're going to be pushing for. You know, fucking with Syria has been on the agenda for a long, long time. So, I mean, this is uh, this is bigger than Trump distracting from the Stormy Daniels situation. This is something, again, that the hawks in Washington and the people that profit from war have been looking for for a long time. So I don't think it's as simple as that, to be quite honest with you. Now, getting back to the chemical weapons, and I know I'm bouncing around a lot here. Um, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to this subject, but something I meant to mention earlier when we were discussing the chemical weapons. Back in 2003, Syria actually went to the UN with a resolution 
saying that they wanted all of the Middle East to be free of chemical weapons. That would include every country, including Syria, obviously. And I'm sure you can guess who opposed that. The U.S. and Israel. So the hypocrisy is just absolutely insane here at the end of the day. And speaking of hypocrisy, I mean, the U.S. is in no position to be telling any country what type of weapons they can and cannot use. This is a country that used depleted uranium in the Middle East, used Agent Orange and napalm in Vietnam. We're the only country to use nuclear warfare. So for us to try to police the world on what kind of weapons they can use is just really... It's just really the most absurd and hypocritical thing you could possibly imagine. So we'll see where the story goes from here. You know, I'm hoping that these strikes were nothing more than imperialists trying to flex their muscles. I'm hoping that this doesn't escalate much further because, again, with, with like Russia involved, the U.S. involved, this does have the potential to reach like World War III status. So hoping that um, we've seen the last of this for a while. I know we're, we're obviously still going to be fucking around in Syria. We're still funding terrorist rebels over there, so that's not going to change. But I'm hoping the escalation of warfare is, is at an end, at least for now. We'll leave it at that for now when it comes to Syria. I'm sure this is something that's going to be a developing story going forward, so we'll chat about it more probably next episode, see where we're at then. So yeah, that's going to wrap up headlines for this week. Pretty depressing shits. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and move into the main segment for the week. So bust out your AKs. We're going to be talking about the Russian Revolution. Last week when we talked about the French Revolution, I gave kind of a brief overview of the history surrounding that event, but more so we focused in on what made it world historical. This week and going forward with the Russian Revolution, we're going to talk about more of the history. Now this is the first socialist revolution in history, there's so many interesting characters, there's so many giant events that took place that I really want to go in depth on this thing. So this is going to be the first of a few episodes about the Russian Revolution. And to kind of get full context, we're going to go all the way back to 1883. We're going to talk about what Russia looked like at that time under the Tsar. And we're going to talk about where the growth of Marxism really started in that country and how this all came about. Going back even a little bit further than 1883, we'll start in the 1860s to begin this conversation. Now, Tsarist Russia during that time really entered the path of capitalist development later than a lot of other countries. There just weren't a lot of factories, there weren't a lot of mills. This was basically a lot of agricultural labor going on, and there was still serfdom kind of ruling the day back then. It wasn't until 1861 that serfdom was actually abolished because Russia saw that this was just going to be an ineffective system moving forward. But even after serfdom was abolished in 1861, it was still almost like being a serf if you were living in Russia during that time. 
So the only real difference is you couldn't be sold as a slave anymore, but you were still toiling on the land. You were still paying these really exorbitant rents to your, your landlords and were doing most of your work for the lords of the manor, more or less. And this whole situation quickly became pretty intolerable. I mean, you had the survivals of serfdom, crushing taxation, and redemption payments to the landlords, which not infrequently exceeded the income of the peasant households altogether. This whole situation really ruined the peasants and reduced them to pauperism and forced them to quit their villages in search of some type of livelihood. So they went to find work in the mills and factories, what few there were at the time, and this really ended up being a source of cheap labor power for manufacturers. It's important to remember during this time, too, that there was a really repressive police state in Russia. So these workers were kept in check. I mean, they were often harassed by police officers, the Cossacks during the time. So if they wanted, you know, any opportunity to try to improve working conditions, that was crushed almost instantly. This was a pretty repressive police state, to say the least. From about 1865 to 1890, you really saw a transfer of workers who were previously agricultural workers moving into things like factories, mills, and working on the railroads. You know, it went from about 700,000 workers all the way up to about 1.4 million by 1890. So while capitalism was still lagging behind in Russia as compared to other nations, it still was moving along efficiently enough. It was developing in Russia during that time period, and that really accelerated during the 1890s. This time period was really important to what would be the future revolution, because what we saw during that time period was the growth of the proletariat. You know, we had a lot of these workers previously working in the fields, working for the lords of the manor. They were all very separate. You know, there's no way to really collectivize and come together. But when you're all jammed together in a factory or in a mill or working on the railroads, it's going to bring about kind of a natural organization. So again, from about 1865 all the way through the 1890s, we saw the birth of the proletariat in Russia. Now, with the growth of this proletariat did come some rudimentary attempts at organizing. Strikes were a little bit more frequent, and while these strikes were often crushed almost right off the bat by the Tsar and the repressive police state there, you could at least see that the colonel was there, that these workers were starting to understand that if they wanted to throw off the yoke of exploitation, that getting organized was the most effective way to potentially do so. Moving to 1883 is when we start to see not only the first Marxists in Russia, but really the first kernel of what would eventually become the Russian Revolution. Now, during this time period, there were two competing schools of thought on how best to take on this repressive government and these exploitive bosses. On one side, you had the Narodniks or the populists, and on the other side, you had those first Marxists in Russia, really led by Plekhanov and his Emancipation of Labor group. Now, when we're discussing the Russian Revolution, it's so easy to want to focus on characters like Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin to a certain degree, because these were the figureheads in many ways. These were very important characters in this whole story. But without Plekhanov and his Emancipation of Labor group coming into Russia in about 1883, we don't really get to a Lenin. We don't get to a Trotsky, much less a Stalin. You know, Plekhanov and his group were so vital just because they, they translated works like the Communist Manifesto into Russian. They, they translated Engels' uh, Socialism, Utopian or Scientific into Russian. And they brought with them Marxism. They brought with them scientific socialism, which ended up being such an effective tool when it came to combating not only anarchists, but these Narodniks as well and their idealism and how best to, to face down these exploitive systems. So while you had Marx and Engels really stressing the importance of 
the proletariat being the revolutionary class, that they're the ones that should lead the revolution. You had the Narodniks, the other school of thought, on the other hand, saying that, no, we need to strictly go to the peasantry. We're not going to worry about the proletariat. That's not the revolutionary class. You know, they were pure idealists in this respect. So you had the Narodniks even going to the peasants, dressing as them, trying to convince them to be revolutionaries. And it just didn't work. It never caught on with the peasants. This was not really a force that you could organize. While we talk about the proletariat, again, in these factories, they're already organized in a lot of ways just by the fact of where they're at, their working conditions, etc. So this was a major error by the Narodniks. Again, this was idealism. They assumed that the proletariat was not revolutionary, that the peasants were revolutionary. So even after attempting to turn the peasants into revolutionaries and failing miserably, they went into like even more idealism, a worse spot, and decided that the best route to take was just single-handedly going through with assassination attempts, that somehow picking off these leaders one by one would lead to revolution. And as we know, that's just not how it works throughout history. And we saw actual proof that the Narodniks were incorrect in their outlook. Now, they were actually successful in assassinating Tsar Alexander II, but of course he was just replaced by Tsar Alexander III, who ended up being worse and more repressive. So this outlook that picking off individual leaders would lead to a revolution just did not play out at all. In fact, it made things worse at the end of the day. And they were also incorrect about choosing the peasants as the supposed class that was going to lead the revolution. Over the next few years, we saw the, the peasant class really start to splinter. You had the ones who were still essentially serfs, still toiling away on that land, treated as slaves more or less. And during that same time period, we saw the rise of the Kulaks who were exploiting all this labor. So to assume that that's the class you want to revolutionize when there's no cohesion there was just not the correct outlook. And that was proven as well. On the other hand, we had Plekhanov and that emancipation of labor group through the works of Marx and Engels arguing the opposite, that no, let's look to the proletariat, this class that is already organized. They are the ones who are going to lead the revolution. And as we know now, looking back at history, that was the correct outlook. Now, all that being said, and remembering how important it was that uh, Plekhanov and the Emancipation of Labor Group really brought Marxism to Russia, brought scientific socialism to Russia, and planted those seeds for what would become the revolution eventually, it's important to remember that this group was not infallible at all. So after winning that line struggle with the Narodniks, they had some interesting viewpoints on how to move forward. Now, they assumed that leaving the peasantry out altogether was the route to take. They thought that the proletariat, with a little help from the liberal bourgeoisie, would be enough to overthrow that czarist autocracy. And that move of leaving out the peasants, in hindsight, was obviously not the correct line, to say the least. So that was a major error amongst Plekhanov and that group, and really did plant the seeds for his future Menshevik views, which we'll get to in a later show. And that wasn't the only struggle that Plekhanov and the Emancipation of Labor Group were facing at the time. You know, while they were so instrumental in forming a lot of these Marxist groups throughout Russia, there was the rise of a lot of unions during that time period as well. There was just no cohesion between the groups. All these unions were kind of splintered entities. All these Marxist groups were a little bit splintered. So without that power of coming together and forming a real party, you know, having some real solidarity together, they just weren't going to be able to affect any real change at the end of the day. With all these groups being separate, they just were never going to be powerful enough to really take on this Tsarist autocracy and make any headway. So who was going to be responsible for filling that gap, right? 
who is going to not only bring together all these Marxist groups, but form a coalition between these Marxist groups and all these unions? Who was going to lead the charge and really put together a workers' party that was worthy of not only challenging the Tsar, but also carrying out a revolution? Well, that work was left to somebody you're probably pretty familiar with, one Vladimir Lenin, and he was incredibly successful in that work. So that's where we'll leave it for this week. Next week, we'll talk about Lenin, his beginnings, where he came from, how he was radicalized, how he was exiled like a thousand times to Siberia. So we'll really get into Lenin and talk about why he is so important to the Russian Revolution. So hopefully you enjoyed the show this week. Hopefully you got something out of it. Again, this is going to be several episodes just because there's so much to talk about. Again, if you want to talk with me, you can usually find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. You can find me on Facebook as well. I do have the Manifesting Podcast page there. You can find me on Instagram. If you feel like supporting the show, you can do so at Patreon.com slash ManifestPod. And if you have any ideas for content, for things you want me to talk about, whether it be headlines or longer segments, I'm always open to suggestion. Again, I want to make a show that you guys actually enjoy and you're really getting something out of. So until next week... Red Salute.